Welcome to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered with Perry Clark. This program looks at mental health from unique perspectives and shows you how to manage your life by finding the knots that help you and stay away from the ones that could be a disadvantage. Now, here is your host, Perry Clark. Hello, everyone. This is Perry Clark back with you, licensed marriage and family therapist, and welcome to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I want to remind everyone that this podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes and does not constitute working with a licensed mental health professional. Please seek one out in your area to work on your unique issues. And if they're not in your area, at least look at also the video stuff so someone in your state can help you. So today's episode, I'm continuing with some of the, uh, in a vein of some of my other guests, whether you've heard when we talk with like Alexis Overstreet or Steve Sawyer or uh, Regina, uh, sorry, <laughs> uh, with um, Tracy Gantmaroy, we're talking with somebody who blends the worlds of our POC and BIPOC POC identities with brain spotting in their connective work. So today's guest is Regina Fer- Ferdni. Ferdni. No, I'll let them fix it, but uh, 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 you know how I, I sadly screw up names on here, even though I try not to. Uh, Regina is a licensed clinical social worker and owner of Indigenous Counseling and Wellness Center. She is a member of the United Homa National, which is of Louisiana. She participates in local tribal activities in California, where she resides currently. Regina is a resource around Middle Eastern culture. Her spouse is Persian. She also works with first and second responders, addiction, over 20 years worth of experience, complex and developmental trauma, historical and intergenerational trauma, as well as adoption, all members of the triad. She has been part of the POC coalition within a county organization and collaborating planning BIPOC cultural events. She was presented, she was presented nationally. She has presented nationally regarding the overlaps and parallels between Native American traditions and brain spotting. Regina is a brain spotting trainer and consultant, EMDR trained, mindfulness and body, mind body medicine trained, and is a somatic experience practitioner, SEP. She utilizes a strength based and culturally sensitive, in culturally sensitive and formed person centered approach. She's been in private practice since 2010 and is currently completing a PhD in natural and integrative medicine. Regina, welcome to Untying Knots. And I apologize for screwing up the last name. Oh, good morning, Perry. Um, yeah, so uh, my last name is uh, Beridnia. And um, as, as you mentioned, I have um, Indigenous Counseling and Wellness, um, and which I started in 2010. Um, but I've been in the field since about 1995, which kind of dates me. <laughs> so you've also been able to see some of the changes in what we are actually doing and how we're doing mental health compared to what they were, have been that probably most people have built their ideas around what mental health is. So to that end, how did you find yourself in all of this? How did you get here? So um, I started out um, in the field uh, working at the Veterans Hospital in 
during grad school, uh, trying out different things in the field, um, working with uh, domestic violence, working with um, addictions treatment. Um, and then um, after that, um, uh, when I moved to California, I was working for Child Protective Services. I did that for 10 years. During that work, I um, noticed that there were a lot of youth that I worked with that I would refer out for therapy. And as you mentioned about the field changing, um, I had become aware of the um, approaches that were somatic, uh, particularly at that time, EMDR. And I was referring youth out for EMDR treatment, but then I checked back with their therapist four to six months later and to ask how the EMDR is going. And they, the therapist would say, oh, we're just doing talk. And even though this was an EMDR therapist, hmm. um, and so I was a little disillusioned. And plus the kids were getting so much turnover of therapist. Um, I, I felt like my heart was leading me to want to do more clinical work. Um, mm-hmm. and plus uh, the toll of being a CPS worker, I, you know, I looked around me, there was so much dark humor and flat affect. I didn't want to become that. So I did, um, I, I did a lot of mindfulness in order to take care of myself, um, studied with the center for mind body medicine. Mm-hmm. I was using massage to actually physically feel in my body, um, because, um, it was a type of work that was um, where I saw the worst of the worst on a regular basis, you know, Mm -hmm. and had to go into court and testify about um, those situations that were, um, you know, some of the most difficult situations that one might see. Um, So I I came to like this crossroads in my, uh, in my life and um, really felt my heart pulling towards wanting to, um, do work clinically so that I could um, really uh, address the trauma directly and mm-hmm. over time and really re, you know, be alongside someone. Mm-hmm. And because from what I was understanding, um, there was so much more to the, the somatic uh, approaches than what I had learned in talk therapy, you know, mm-hmm. having, having um, come through college in the mid nineties Um and and so I wanted to um, explore that more, and I, I began to move um, in the direction I started my practice at that point. Um, and then I trained in EMDR and um, and found that somewhat helpful. Um, and then I heard about this thing called brain spotting, and mm-hmm. um, someone had given me their card, and I just um, looked it up online, and I signed up, not really even fully knowing what it was <laughs> mm-hmm. at the time. And I was blown away when I was in my phase one training, just um, at the depth of what it could get to um, the pre-verbal trauma, the pieces that I had never personally been able to touch mm-hmm. in any in any other approach that I had tried. And um, and so I knew that this was something really powerful to be able to bring uh, to help others to to heal their uh, their traumas in in a profound way. Very much, very much so. And I think you hit on a number of things that I definitely will think we would probably want to circle back and discuss uh, from what you experienced there. But uh, just the standpoint of the nature of this preverbal trauma, which is also part of the developmental trauma, um, is something that 
I don't know. It's it's an interesting thing that no one, I, I don't think really people think about the fact that we can be exposed to trauma from the moment we enter the world or even before we enter the world itself mm-hmm. to think that it's all something that happens once you become an adult or become a teenager is there's a disconnect there with the idea of trauma. Yeah. Trauma is definitely not just what we remember. It's um, mm-hmm. our body remembers before we had mm-hmm. that, this concept of our, you know, images. So we start getting images, I think between like around age four is when mm-hmm. we typically have image memories. I mean, there are, are cases or times where someone might remember something younger, but typically before that, for most of uh, a youth's experience before the age of four is not going to be consciously remembered. Mm, but it will be remembered in the body. Exactly. Which now makes me wonder is like, is, is that even talked about in any of these child development classes with parents? No. Assuming they even take a, uh, a child development class. No, but I do feel like in the adoption world that there is more awareness of that because mm. um, adoptive parents have been struggling for a long time to um, to figure out that piece because just having a, a child move into even the even the best most loving home doesn't um, take away that there was a trauma that happened, um, a, you know, a, a breach in the. Um, uh, the child's experience um, mm-hmm. that's related to attachment that um, that can bubble up in, in so many different ways as the child youth is growing up. And, and because it's something that the youth can't remember, if you just treat the behaviors that come up as the, as the young person begins to act out, you're not getting to the root of what's driving that. Mm-hmm. And, and so there are ways within this process that we can find out what the roots are or get a, a sense of that. And it might be an, even just an empty hole, you know, in, in the one, a common one is, is that empty hole in the gut area. Mm-hmm. And, and, in, and what's profound about that um, is that that can also be kind of a, what predisposes someone to addiction, right? That oh. sense of trying to fill something. When I was at the, a veterans hospital in Seattle, I was placed in the addictions treatment center. And mm-hmm. I noticed that we had a disproportionate amount of adoptees, former foster youth and uh, individuals who were raised by family. And mm-hmm. so I did my research on that and found that 33% of the individuals in our addictions treatment center um, who filled out the, the questionnaire had actually either been adopted, raised in foster care or raised by relatives. And when mm-hmm. you think about in our world, um, only 1% um, of individuals are adopted. One, maybe 1% have been in foster care. That's a, that's pretty disproportionate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very much so. I also wonder if there's an element too, even with our growing issues around depression as well, that fits in this too. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. yeah. Especially when we're seeing depression in young kids. Yeah, definitely. Um, sometimes uh, you have a, a child who has symptoms of depression and no, and no one knows why. And, you know, there certainly can be the biochemical where it's passed down within the family, but there mm-hmm. are also um, instances. Uh, for an ex- example, I had one youth that came to me, had depression, had um, 
a grandma in the home and two parents that were incredibly supportive. Both parents were, um, you know, well-trained within our mental health field. Um, no one had any idea of, of prior trauma for this youth, even her, mm-hmm. herself. She couldn't name any prior trauma, but all she could tell me was there was this black hole um, was what she was sensing. And so I said, draw it. And she drew it in the middle of a, of a medicine shield. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this young woman was indigenous and um, that became her brain spot. I literally held up that um, picture that she drew and we were able to find a place where she felt it. So we don't have to know where that black hole that represents depression um, came from. There may be no um, no images that a person may um may remember but there's a place in their body that they feel it and we can contact that through running the eye position and so even if that memory is pre-verbal um it's gonna be able to process without having to um figure out you know when an incident happened or or for the even uh she had no words for it Mm -hmm. to even describe it so and brain spotting is amazing and our ability to be able to work with those things very much so. And I think you've also hit on that natural, nice little segue into some more of what we want to talk about is that aspect of working with the Native American population, in addition to how brain spotting is also connected to this. And as I read in your bio, how there is a sort of a natural relationship between them. So which one of those do you want to start with? Yeah. Um, so when I uh, came into brain spotting, um, I I noticed that there was a number of just really natural parallels mm-hmm. with our indigenous uh, kind of values and our um, ways of being in the world. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, I became curious about that. And I also, you know, um, began to kind of bring those thoughts together um, because I wanted to um, think, think about it as, as uh, for me, a primary thing has always been, is this something that's going to be helpful for my community? So mm-hmm. when I say my community, you know, I'm originally from Louisiana. My tribe is United Home and Nation. But at this point in my life, I'm living in California. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, while I still have attachment to that original community, most of my um, participation has, is with um, the, the Bay Area uh, Native community and Sacramento mm-hmm. region, um, mm-hmm. because these are places that I've lived for the last 20 years. Um, but how how is it going to be helpful for my community? Um, when I was working for the county, a lot of my work was, you know, bridging social services and our Native community and helping social services to be able to have a better connection with the community because you know, there's a lot that's broken there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then now as I move into private practice, moved into private practice, um, you know, it's always at the forefront of my mind if, if in what I'm doing, is that there a way that, that this is going to be helpful uh, for, for our um, communities. And um, it really struck me that this modality in particular, out of all the modalities I've been trained in um, had, a lot to offer as far as being um, more decolonizing and mm-hmm. uh, in the way that it's set up. Um, 
you know, as, as far as that, that it's not protocol driven, that we follow the person's nervous system versus trying to lead it, you know, mm-hmm. that, um, that we're uh, sitting with the person mindfully and trusting that the process is going to go wherever it needs to go. I mean, these are all things with our, um, with our indigenous community that are part of what are honored. And so I, I saw that um, all, all of that in, in the brain spotting work that I was doing. And um, I brain spotting was um, I would say a, a bit um, cutting edge in that we began to have a, a BIPOC branch before a lot of other uh, psychotherapy modalities. Um, and I was, became active in uh, developing that and be, uh, as an ass- assistant and our, we call our assistance facilitators because we're actually quite actively involved in the training process and um, then became a consultant um, through that track. And I was noticing that we didn't have a lot of um, other native clinicians. And I'm like, mm-hmm. when I was holding the two things, like, it's like, this is so resonant. Why, why aren't a lot of my, you know, my native community um, showing up? Mm-hmm. And um, what I felt was that because of the level of fear um, due to historical trauma, um, it, it's just a whole nother layer of um, being hard to trust psychotherapies for mm-hmm. one and then also um even even to feel safe within BIPOC community um mm-hmm. that 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 our native community needed to be able to come together as a community um to do this together with the incorporation of of uh, our tra- our traditions within the process for it to feel um safe enough and it, and and um and it, it it's been um i think it 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 has been a lot of um what's the word a, a, lot, a lot to overcome even even to get there together mm-hmm. as a community um there's there's so many the financial barriers as well is is huge um more, more than um a lot of other even BIPOC communities. Um, most of our uh, helpers are working in native agencies and um, with nonprofit pay. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're not typic- typically, my colleagues that are um, indigenous are not typically working in private practice. They're not typically mm-hmm. working in the higher paying parts of the field, the hospital uh, systems or, um, you know, um, agencies that pay more they're more working on in within indian health and so that makes it um, another barrier you know as far as being able to sit at the table of of, um you know with other uh, clinicians and Mm -hmm. um, having access and then um the higher level of mistrust of something that's new um our spirituality was um you know illegal for a a large period of time a recent period of time um in this country's history and and so um you know that's but that 
that's a piece that's really um, primary in that um, it's something that's very close um, for our Indigenous clinicians. It's something that um, in the work that they do, it's just it's just part of it. And, and mm-hmm. it's, so it's like um, they don't want to, my sense anyway, in, in working with my my peers and um, is that of not wanting to leave that part behind, right? So, so that um, what's more interesting is um, approaches that do um, allow for for that aspect to be able to come in mm-hmm. to the work and to and to be able to um, to be with other native clinicians and um, and and for the approach to to uh, feel as though it's um, responsive to the community values and and the, those pieces are are layered in and part of um, of the approach and the the way that uh, in, individuals are um, the I will just say the experience for. Mm-hmm. Oh, so much. And uh, you, you said so many very interesting points there. I mean, one of those being the aspect of decolonizing, which is a concept that for many or don't even, I would, th- would think that many would not even think about that there needs to be decolonizing in mental health uh, is one thing. And just for those who understand, who wondering what what is decolonization, it is the aspect of not focusing this from a Western white dominated Eurocentric idea of what needs to be done, which is counter to Native American, counter to Asian, counter to Middle Eastern, counter to Latin American, counter to African American principles of and cosmologies of how we've built the world around this. And come to think of it, as you pointed out, is that during 2020 and everything that happened with George George Floyd's murder, that's when I did start seeing, oh, things like IFS and um a number of the other uh, um, emotional focus therapy all now coming out with big programs for BIPOC people f- at that time. But where were you before that? Yeah, for sure. And um, definitely some challenge more, I think higher level of challenges implementing it because I'm trained in multiple modalities. So mm-hmm. I've uh, had experience of different modalities and the way they've tried to do it. And there's definitely been um, been a lot of challenges with uh, with some of the modalities, but I would say that within Brainspotting, we had 100% support from the mm-hmm. top um, all the way, you know, through the organization as far as uh, at least from you know David Grand mm-hmm. supporting mm-hmm. and and working very hand in hand with um, with the BIPOC community as we were developing that branch which was really powerful. Could you speak a little more to that experience of working with David and what that, and also to more about brain spotting for those who have just now hearing about it, what this is and what that's been all like. Um, yes. Yeah, so I, I didn't get to meet David directly until mm-hmm. um, I was presenting at the international conference in Denver about um, how brain spotting um, parallels our our native traditions. Um, at that point, I was in the process of becoming a, a consultant, and, and so he wanted to to meet me. Um, 
but also um, as I was uh, helping with trainings before that, I, I was mm -hmm. also aware even before I met David that he had a lot of support for our community mm -hmm. and, um, and that things were, um, we were, I mean, just the beauty of, of the BIPOC trainings were, was just amazing. And, and the, that in, within the trainings, um, I having had trainings that were non-BIPOC before the mm. branch developed, because I, I had been in brain spotting for a couple of years at that point, um, that um, we were able to do it in a way that felt resonant and mm -hmm. um, to do it in to offer it in ways that um, the connection with community was able to be be placed uh, primary in a primary way, mm -hmm. and um, just each and every training was just just such a beautiful and and I would say spiritual experience, um, and so it was. Um, an amazing opportunity when I got to meet David at the international conference and um, get to talk with him briefly, but mm -hmm. also very intimidating for me being a naturally introverted person. <laughs> um, oh, I get you. I'm, I'm a hard introvert as well, but, but this job, this podcast is like, okay, so it moves me towards the middle point, but it's like, no, I very much get you. It's like, I don't want to be seen by people at a certain point in the day. Just, <laughs> let me be let me be <laughs> but um but what was refreshing is that my experience of him was like well what do you feel like you need for your community what is your what is your community need and how can i can we provide that support mm -hmm. um and so that you know just felt like um within the process of the the bipoc branch of brain spotting forming he was 100% there and then it went mm -hmm. this idea of um, creating a space for our native clinicians to try to bring them more into the fold. He mm -hmm. was behind that as well, that, um, it was just, um, you know, he was open to what, what the community said it needed, which is, you know, research. That's what research says is particularly with our native community is that the approach should be to ask the community, not to impose on the community, what, you know, what we think, uh, or what, you know, a dominant group, mm -hmm. I think the community needs, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so um, he-, he And that's an example that. of decolonizing. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so he was like, he was right there with, you know, how can we, how can we support? What does the community need? And, um, and let's make it happen. Mm -hmm. And he, then he paired me up with- um, to work with Steve Sawyer because um, Steve Sawyer is an, a native clinician. And um, so I reached out to Steve and um, I had already been working with another trainer who had been doing some training on the Fond du Lac reservation, mm -hmm. uh, Deb Antonori. Um, so I, I was doing those two things simultaneously uh, as working with Deb as I was, Steve and I were um, going to, figuring out what this was going to look like and, um, and, and deciding to do the first indigenous um, phase one and being that it was in the middle of COVID. Um, I believe the first one was done virtually. Mm -hmm. So yeah. and first, first several were virtual. And if anything, the virtual has been one of the biggest things that's allowed much more of our, the, so we say the BIPOC nation to grow 
mm-hmm. with our clinicians because I, I think we actually met briefly during the 2019 when we did in person in Atlanta. If I remember correctly, we were there. I wasn't in Atlanta. Oh, okay. But uh, okay, so I've seen you at some of the other. I think I started seeing you more at the online ones mm-hmm. uh, as we went forward from there. But uh, that's one of those things where even the technology and time has been able to allow us this fostered growth. Yeah. So one of the things that um, doing it virtually allowed us to do was to um, bring in some First Nations community mm-hmm. uh, from Canada. We we had a participant from Ecuador. Um, and so we tried to really open that up to, um, you know, to include all of the Americas and also Pacific Islanders um, mm-hmm. who might be interested. Um, uh, you know, so we we um, tried to, you know, just cast the net and, and let the communities know that this is what we have and see who might be interested, get, get the word out to uh, many different communities and um this last training we had, we, we had it locally here near Sacramento, and we had individuals who came from Washington State and Minnesota to participate in the training. So the, it's definitely um, the word is, uh, has spread, you know, pretty far, and um, which has been a beautiful thing. Very much so. And I think that's a beautiful place for us to take a break. So we're going to go ahead and pause here and come out back for our second half, folks. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist, and here with Regina Fernie. Fernidia. Fernidia. Okay, so that, that the uh that I'm screwing up on here. Fernidia uh, uh, is here on Untying Knots, Minds and Souls and Tethered. So stay tuned, folks. We'll be back shortly. Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Our lives and the world around us can get messy and frustrating. Untangle and Grow Counseling's focus is to untangle that mess and make sense of it so you have a good foundation to build and grow from. Visit us on the web at untangleandgrowcounseling.com. Perry Clark offers individual psychotherapy, couples and family therapy, and adolescence therapy from a variety of coping materials and resources. Visit untangleandgrowcounseling.com for more information. Men are currently in a mental health crisis. Suicide, addiction, and loneliness are on the rise. Men need mentorship, community, and guidance. On the Men's Therapy Podcast with Mark Azoulay, you'll hear from experts on topics that men care about the most. Financial health, relationships, fitness, emotional management, and lifestyle design. Listen live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. If you have a question or comment about our podcast, send an email to pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. That's pclark 
at untyingknotspodcast.com. And now, back to the program. Welcome back, folks, on Tying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist, here with Regina Ferni. Feridnia. Feridnia. Just the joys of my dyslexia. Uh, uh, Feridnia here on Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. And so we were just talking the first half about Regina's work with Native Native community, working with brain spotting and so forth. And we've also mentioned uh, fellow trainer, Steve Sawyer. And so I'm actually going to be taking Steve's training, which is on developmental trauma that he started this year. I'm taking it in October when it comes to Sacramento. I could have gone to LA, but Sacramento worked better for my schedule. And I also understand you have a training as well that is starting up, which I know I'm going to be attending next month. So for those of you listening, this is for when the next time this training comes up, because we're probably going to be hearing this in October, you want to keep your eyes out for this training. So tell us a bit about your training that's coming up. Yeah, so I um, I feel like it's a little bit different take. It's um, And I, I don't know that there's ever been a historical trauma training that's quite like the way that I approach it because yeah of course there are some things that are, are typical where we, we may uh, talk about the history the what's happened with different communities that's going to be always incorporated but um, the pieces that I feel like I bring to this are um, there are certain ways that I listen when I'm working with someone things that we can pick up on that are super subtle that um, can help us to find a way to work with someone who has a history, has historical trauma. Um, now, uh, I'm sure any, just about any community could have some history of historical trauma, but some communities have it disproportionately. Mm-hmm. So historical trauma uh, disproportionately impacts our BIPOC communities. And how do we tap into that? How does it show up in our office? What, what do, you know? So there are some things that I feel like often will go unnoticed by a therapist that could be very key in tapping into something that is very crucial, a very crucial connection for that person to um, their the historical trauma um, in their in their lineage. And so those are some of the uh, pieces that I'm going to try to impart in my training, like how do mm-hmm. how do I do that? Because it's been incredibly um, deep and um, and phenomenally uh, shifting for individuals to be able to tap into those um, those aspects, those pieces. Of, some individuals may come in and already have some ideas that about their historical trauma from what they know, but there are individuals who don't know anything about it, but yet feel as though it impacts them. That's, Mm. that's one community. Um, For example, I had someone who came in who had uh, ancestors who were in the Holocaust and wanted to figure out how to tap into that. They had never talked about it. Mm -hmm. This individual didn't knew that they were um, feeling um, a lot of, uh, anxiety related to current political climate mm-hmm. but and they're like i think it's related to my parents having been in the holocaust but i don't know how to tap into it so i you know i, I asked them is there uh, an image uh, from a movie or from something you've ever read 
about the Holocaust that just really stood out to you? And this individual was able to come up with something. And that's where we started from. And it, mm. it was something that really where they could feel it on a gut level within their body. Um, so, you know, that would be the kind of example. Um, also, I would say um, sometimes the, the person may not even consciously um, have a link, but there's something that my my knowledge of their uh, community's history of historical trauma mm-hmm. um, and and what there is showing up in the office that there might be a link. Um, and in a brain spotting way, um, if if I notice something like that, I'm going to offer it without, um, you know, f- feeling without um, looking for the word um, investment. Like I'm, I, you know, I'm not leading their process, but if but if there but if there's something like that that shows up, I may mention it to the person and say and ask them. You know, I'll just say if this resonates, then notice. If not. Don't worry about it, you know, and and off, and there are those pieces that sometimes, um, for example, maybe someone whose family has a history of slavery, and at this point they're having they have an ankle bracelet because of something that happened in their in their mm-hmm. life, right? And they're experiencing a ton of shame. They don't want the neighbors to see them, um, and it feels like that there's a, a really higher than typical level of shame with this individual, Mm -hmm. like helping that connection to, to happen. Right. Um, And, and healing that those layers of, of historical shame, you know, that, that, that this person is carrying beyond just what they're experiencing today in this lifetime. But, you know, what are the, um, what are the ripples um, with their ancestor and, and, and what needs to process within their body? Um, related to that experience that's that's beyond just um just right now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and i think there's that standpoint with two where we get back into as we we're saying earlier the western dominated standpoint of recognizing where ancestral energy is connected to us here and now as well and the idea that no these are separate people that you don't have to hold some sort of connection or responsibility to or influence from Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so um there's a lot of different ways that we can connect to ancestors and one of them you know that's people typically think of is asking the ancestor to come forward and support us but um you know in in a in a way of spirituality you know uh, or having an awareness that the ancestors are there for us but there's also tapping into um these ancestral experiences of trauma that the body may still be holding. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, which I, yeah, you're not going to hear a conversation like that happen on too many of our fellow practitioners, podcasts, and so forth, because I'm going to openly admit I'm a transpersonal therapist, therapist as well. So I definitely look at the aspect of where spirit or the ancestors are in this process that, might be forgotten by others or ignored by others because it is part of our history. Yeah. And um, I think that um, some many communities are closer to that. Right. Um, But in, 
in current day and um many have lost that that connection with that aspect mm. right and um it's an important thing uh, i think the reclaiming of it uh, the um reconnecting allows for um that gap that that healing that you know potentially is there to be able to unfold like um one of the things that we don't recognize enough is that um um I'm, I'm sorry i'm losing my train of thought for a second <laughs> sure we don't recognize enough that um our ancestors um our communities before us knew how to heal phenomenally sometimes mm-hmm. you were asking uh, you were i know you were planning to ask me about like the therapy myth versus reality mm-hmm. and this i think this would be one a, a, a point of that let's jump um, to it <laughs> it's um the, you know the myth is that we have these psychotherapy tools that are evidence-based and this mm-hmm. is the way that people heal to today Mm-hmm. And I think the reality is that, um, you know, there are very good psychotherapies that are coming up that are not yet evidence-based, they're practice-based. Mm-hmm. Um, and in practice, what we're seeing is the results are holding and, and there mm-hmm. are evident, um, there are peer-reviewed articles that are written on some of these modalities Um they're they're they've been in peer-reviewed um journals they just haven't hit that benchmark of being evidence-based um mm-hmm. at this point and what defines evidence-based i mean now evidence-based is also somewhat colonistic model mm-hmm. um, and and so practice-based is equally important to consider and um and that kind of goes to a concept of, from um our indigenous uh, community called uh, two-eyed seeing Mm-hmm. bringing the best of both right so you bring in that scientific viewpoint that maybe comes you know from the western side and there's some things to uh, contribute but also mm-hmm. bringing in um that indigenous um viewpoint is is equally important and um so what our ancestors knew and the ways that healing happened um were incredibly phenomenal um and i think um probably to even to this day one of the things that strongly influences me is i've got an almost 80 year old mom who had polio and um during the time that she had polio she was treated by her grandmother in a traditional way and um and you know she was maybe six years old and has the memories of leaves um Mm. that her grandmother put across her legs and you know that she remembers her um speaking in, in you know traditional language and, and praying over her and and treating her with, with this natural medicine and my mom um you know has healed from that and um and has had a a normal you know life um where a lot of people who had polio never walked again and, mm-hmm. and um well let alone the aspect of living in the iron lung for lack of a better description too exactly it's like, there's a whole conceptual lack of memory, if you will. And we saw that too come up with everything that happened with COVID as well. The sense that this is something new, but we've been dealing with disease as long as we've been on this world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And so there, there's deep wisdom, you know, mm-hmm. is, is that, that we can pull from and, and that there, there are things that I think are coming more to the forefront today that have mm-hmm. been known for a long time. So it's like gaps are getting filled in perhaps um, between, you know, what, what was known and today. And, um, and I think that these are really important things to be happening. It's, it's, I think it's part of reclaiming cultural lineages when you think particularly of African-American populations and Native American populations. Mm-hmm. A lot of that was um, purposely taken mm-hmm. away. And, and there's the, you know, um, refinding it again. Um, and those were things that were maybe feared because they weren't understood. But there are mm. things that um, are very helpful to be able to tap into one's body and to um, to understand um, what makes a, a system uh, whole and what and what um, and what is the spiritual connection? Because when we lose that, that's where we struggle and we flounder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm just letting that sink in for a bit. And the aspect of one of the most key, key, key things is when we hear somebody's being treatment resistant under the evidence base. Well, that's just the example. It's the wrong. You're standing in that void and gap where, oh, some of these other practice-based or even original cultural-based practices would be more useful. And yeah. especially in that aspect of where does it give agency? Where does it give autonomy? Because if anything, as you said, those that were practices were misunderstood is one way to look at this. There's also those who wanted to have power and autonomy over people. So what's the way to do that is to remove the things that give them strength, identity, to be able to make them subservient. For sure. And that that just reminds me of some of the other pieces with the echoes and ripple training too. It's like mm-hmm. what are what are all those impacts that happen from from the things that were uh, and stripped away or from the experiences, right? And mm-hmm. what what does that feel like in someone's body? So if we mm-hmm. know that someone um, who has certain historical experience is more likely to feel trapped in their body to feel like like they need they need to to run. Right. For example, mm-hmm. how do we how do we um, attend to that? Right. If you think if you don't think in a historical context, then those things don't make sense. But if you consider a historical context, right? Um, I mean, the, two things. If you if you consider trusting a person's nervous system that it's telling you something when they're feeling something inside, that's one piece. But the other piece is okay, and I know they're noticing that, is there mm-hmm. potentially a historical context that mm-hmm. might be connected to? Mm-hmm. So that's that's a, a piece that can be really important to um, to establish, and it's a different way of, of looking at things than we typically do. Like what you're mentioning of the, the way of, it's that's more problem-focused, right? Mm-hmm. Versus being, um, it's not even solution-focused, it's like being present being really um, attuned with that individual and being open to the story that their nervous system is going to tell feels completely different than um, 
then the judgment that sometimes happens, you know, when, when um, helpers get burnt out because they, maybe there's problems that they can't solve and they keep seeing them over and over again. So then it gets a label over here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is also another beautiful segue wrapping, coming, circling back to what you were saying earlier about the work in CPS and what you were seeing with the, those working there having the dark humor, or as you said, the flat affect. And of course, there's the other ways that it might show up with issues such as substance usage or other relational points. And you mentioned that you work with first and second responders. I'm curious, just touching on that, where does that play into the standpoint of dealing with the echoes, the ripples as well, with, especially when we're in historical trauma? Yeah, I, I mean, I would, I would say um, someone who, um, who has been working in, um, you know, they've been in mil- some, I, actually some individuals even move from one first responder position to another. They're in military, then they get out the military, they're a police officer and maybe a correction officer too, right? And so mm-hmm. there's this huge need to help. But, and, and they're individuals who are really pulled together in that it's, it's required to be able to hold it together in situations that others are falling apart because you mm-hmm. have to be able to, um, you know, uh, even kind of take authority and, and manage a situation mm-hmm. when in the, in the most challenging of circumstances. So it's in, there are individuals that really hold things down very deep within their nervous system. So their mm-hmm. intensity is going to be a lot less, right? So it's a little bit more, um, more challenging to tap in, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's really important for us not to label a nervous system that's that where their sense of an issue when they're trying to process it is more subtle because, mm-hmm. um, because that's out of necessity and that's, you know, the, the issues often get kind of um, really uh, contained. Mm-hmm. And, and also the person's got to, be able to leave the the stress um, and the constantly uh, you know chaotic environment and go home, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 change gears, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and how does that dovetail with his, historical trauma? Um, you know, I would say particularly maybe for for those who are first and second responders um, who are from historically, you know. Uh, marginalized populations right that Mm -hmm. um that that sense of wanting to act or react and having to contain it could be a parallel you know that's just one thing that comes to mind in thinking of that Mm -hmm. that that historically they could have had ancestors that wanted to respond but it was it wasn't safe to be able to respond and so first and second responders are able to respond to a certain level. They're able Mm -hmm. to respond to containing the situation, but they're not able to um, allow their full fight, fight or uh, fight, flight or freeze Mm -hmm. to move through. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there is still something that gets contained. Um, And so then they may be holding generational ripples of that in their system. Right. Right. Well, and even to the standpoint is the the idea of both macro and micro that we talked we've talked about larger uh, macro cultural relations slavery uh, genocide uh, spiritual re- removal and so forth 
but the Mac, the micro versions of that can also have cultures inside families themselves mm. that can be unsupportive and uh, destructive, even if it doesn't show up on our larger cultural stage. So when we look at that historical aspect, when we look at that connection of spirit and the ancestors, we're also looking just as much as what is the culture of this family? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I would agree with that. Yeah. And I, I'm looking forward to taking your Echoes and Ripples training next month. And uh, with that, I'm wondering is where can other people find out for when you're doing your next one uh, later in the year and into next year? And where so, can people find to contact, contact you? <laughs> yeah, so the best place to check is um, indigenacounseling.com. Mm -hmm. um, and the way that I got that name, um, it, it's very interesting. I was trying to think of what to name my um, practice. And all of a sudden, just out of the blue, Indigenous came to me. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, that sounds like Indigenous. Let me look it up. And I, I Googled it. And um, I saw that Indigenous is, is um, or the Latin version of Indigenous. It means <laughs> Indigenous and Indigenous mean the same thing. I'm like, well, that's it. <laughs> So and my, my sister-in-law is like, oh, I don't, I don't really like that name. I'm like, well, that name came to me. So that's, my, <laughs> that I like it. And, and this is going to be, going to be the, um, the name of, um, of my, of what I do. So, um, so it's an indigenous with an A, um, mm -hmm. counseling, um, dot com. All right. So I'll try to have that in the uh, show notes. And uh, I, I would say the ancestors were talking to you then. <laughs> Somebody was talking yeah. to you then. The, the I, I would agree. Yeah. And then it's, um, you know, my name is Regina and it's got Gina at the end of Indigena mm -hmm. too, which didn't, you know, <laughs> fail to, um, because I was, I was named for my ancestor, actually. Her name was Mary, jo Mary Jean Ronquil, mm -hmm. um, my mom's uh, grandmother. And, um, and so, yeah, it's just all very interesting how it all comes together. Very nice. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to do this episode and uh, look forward to seeing you at the next couple of events here. The, you'll be teaching and we'll also be both at uh, with Steve's. And uh, I hope that there are others out there who are looking forward to also taking your class as well with brain spotting. So well, with thank that, you, Perry. you're welcome. So with that, folks, that's our episode for today. I uh, hope you've enjoyed this, and I hope you check out our programs here on the Voice of America Network. This is Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist here on Untying Knots, Minds and Souls and Tethered. Be safe. See you soon. Thank you for tuning in for Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. Be sure to join your host, Perry Clark, for another episode on the podcast coming soon on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.